Well, good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. <clears throat> How's everybody doing? I guess it's not really time to sit and chit-chat, but I hope you're doing well. So um, it's more of a rhetorical question. I just want you to know that I care about you. So, um, so as I mentioned before, we're going to be starting this, uh, this Bible reading uh, plan but we need to spend, before we do that, kind of two weeks talking about why that matters. Why is it important? And to do that, we're going to look at uh, two different passages of Scripture. Uh, one in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 today and next week in Colossians chapter 3. And uh, if, if you've been hanging around me this past kind of year, you'll know that uh, the Lord just been, oh, stirring up some stuff in my heart. And so last... I don't know when it was, maybe in June, um, I was sitting out on our porch, kind of enjoying this thunderstorm, not like the scary thunderstorms that come in the heat of the day uh, where you hide and there's weather aware things and you're we're worried, but it was these ones that kind of rumble through in the thin light of the morning, right? And it's, and it's raining and there's this thumb, thunder that's rumbling and, and, and bounding and bouncing off of things. And, and I was able to sit in the early morning on our porch while it's the, the rain's coming down in, in kind of gentle sheets and just spending time with the Lord and this roll of thunder comes through that it just felt like it came out of everywhere all at once and it was crackling and rolling and, and, and rumbling and it, and it shattered and shattered. It, it jiggled the windows in their panes and it, and it shook me like to my very color. I could feel the rumble of the thunder in my chest and it just rumbled like all the way to my soul and it made my hair stand up on end. And as it, as it kind of faded away into this, the, the gray light of the morning, the Lord brought this passage to mind in Job. And uh, this is in Job 37, verse 1. And it says, At this my heart pounds and leaps from its place. Listen, listen to the roar of his voice, to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven and sends it to the ends of the earth. After that comes the sound of his roar. He thunders with his majestic voice. When his voice resounds, he holds nothing back. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. Now, as I sat out there in the porch and I read that, I was just, I was overwhelmed with the, the majesty of who God is. Like when we gather here today, we're not huddling around some kind of philosophy. We're not here to keep some set of rules. We're here to worship the living God. And he is majestic and marvelous and holy and incomprehensible. All these theological words, like he is immutable, he doesn't change. He is omnipotent, he has all power, he is omniscient, he has all knowledge. And he has created us to worship him. And he is wondrous and he works wonderful things in wondrous ways that we cannot comprehend. He's not some God in a box that we take off the shelf and play with when we feel like it and put it back on and then, and then go about our business. He is the living God and he rumbles and he thunders and his voice should terrify us and cause us to fear him in awestruck wonder. And as I sat out there and processed that that morning and kind of throughout the time after that, the Lord brought to, to mind this, uh, this passage from, from, uh, from Matthew 14 where the disciples are on the boat on the Sea of Galilee, and it's a storm, and they're striving against this storm, and Jesus comes up walking on the water. And I just want to briefly remind you, people can't walk on the water. Like, that's impossible. And we sort of read that, and we see it in children's books, and we think, oh, yeah, of course, yeah, Jesus walks on water. Of course, no, people don't do that. If I was to tell you to go walk across Lake Hefner, you can't, Okay. And yet Jesus is walking across the Sea of Galilee. I've been there. It's a lake. It's water. If you step in it, you sink. Okay? There he is. And he's walking. And all Peter does is he looks to Jesus as he says, Lord, if it's you, call me out upon the waters. It's a crazy question to ask. And the only thing Jesus says to Peter is, come. And Peter gets out of the boat and he does the impossible. He walks on the water with Jesus. 
And so as I, as I process through all this, this God who works in wondrous ways, whose voice thunders and, and shakes us to our very core of who we are as human beings, and he calls us out of the boat to literally live an impossible life. We are not called to live some kind of morally superior life. Literally, the very life of Christ in us, that is the Christian life. That is the hope of glory. It is not Brandon exceedingly bettered. It is Christ in a redeemed Brandon living his life through me, using my personality and all the things and people that he created me to be, but it is his life through me. That's the song that we just sang. It's about him residing in me and me remaining in him and him remaining in me. So as we process through that and Trevor and I sit and dream and think like, gosh, what is the Lord calling us to do? And what are we going to be doing here as a church? And what are we, ah, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to shepherd these people? What are we? And we began to realize this life, this out of the boat life that responds to this wondrous God. It is not a program that we need to implement. It's not like a book we need to read or a seminar we need to go to. As a matter of fact, it's not something that we control. Well, what is it? Well, that song, Remain in Me, looks back to John 15, where our church gets its name. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Abide or remain in me, and, and, and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then Jesus goes on a couple verses later, and he says, Hey, remain in me, and I in you, as, my father, as I remain in my Father and obeyed him. If you obey my words, you will remain in me, and I in you, just as I obeyed my Father's words, and I remain in him. This is what Jesus has told us to do. What does it mean to remain in him? Well, we, we obey his words and we surrender. So first we have to know the word of God. Then we have to submit or surrender to the word of God. And then as we do that, uh, we are fruitful in the life that he lives through us. And in order to do that, we're going to have to engage in the word of God. So the conclusion that we came to is we all need to be in the word. That's what's going to live life out of the boat. If we want to get out of the boat, we got to get into the Word. And we need to do it as a church. And so we started to think, okay, uh, how do we do that? What does that look like? And in an answer to that question, we, we looked at um, doing this dwell plan. And I'm going to explain more of that later. I keep teasing you with it. I'm not trying to tease you with it. But it's not that complicated, by the way. It's not like it's something magical. It's, we have a plan that I'll explain later of how can we get everybody into the Bible together. So the idea is that starting January 15th for 45 days, we want all of us reading the same parts of the Bible for 45 straight days, hopefully to either uh, begin or deepen a habit of daily Bible reading. Not so that you check it off your list, so that you say, hey, I read my Bible, I've done good God, be nice to me. No. We're going to look at today in 2 Timothy chapter 3 about how the Word of God functions in the life of a believer. And we're going to look at why it's important to study the Bible as an individual why that matters, how that functions, and then next week look at why we need to study the Bible in community and how we can do that well. So, let's dive in. Before we do that, I want to pray. Lord, um, gosh, I love these people. Thank you that you have let us share life together. And I see these faces up there and children being born and, you know, kids going off to college and getting married and the whole spectrum of life, and grandkids, and gosh, thank you that you give us life in the body, life as part of a church, um, the community that we've been gifted, the ecclesia, the gathering of believers under the banner of the love of Jesus. Thank you for that. Lord, we come to you who is the, the logos, the word of God made flesh, and we come to you not only to worship you, but to learn from you. As you open the word today, to read the words of Paul to his spiritual son, Timothy. Teach us and lead us and guide us. Help us understand what you are teaching us through your word and then apply it to our lives. Lord, we, we bring all kinds of things here today, all kinds of ideas about what it means to study your word, uh, disappointment and not doing it enough or not doing it well enough, wishing we did this or reading it. And, and Lord, I just I pray you help us to lay those things aside and simply truly approach your face today. You have won us the right to approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence. 
we have bold and confident access to the throne of grace. So we approach you today. Thank you for winning that for us. Help us to walk in that reality as we listen to you teach us today. Pray for yourself that the Lord would teach you whatever it is that he wants to teach you. You'd be able to lay aside whatever would encumber your listening and simply receive what he teaches you today. And as always, we want to pray for the people around us, whether it's someone you just met today or someone you've been married to for a long time or one of your kids or someone sitting beside you. Just pray for the people around you. Pray for them by name in your mind. Uh, ask that the Lord would teach them what he wants them to know. Ask that the Lord would ignite in them a deep passion to meet with him in his word on a daily basis. Lord, we come to you out of great need, and we come to you out of obedience, to live in obedience to the commands of your word, because you love us, and we want to respond to you in love, and we demonstrate that love by walking in obedience to what you tell us. So help us, Lord Jesus, today. We commit this time to you. In your risen name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And the context of this is that 2 Timothy is the, comes after 1 Timothy. Timothy was a, 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 someone that had Paul had discipled, and he was, um, Paul had written letters to him. There was a group of letters called the Pastoral Epistles, the letters that he had written to Timothy to help him know how to pastor, shepherd people well, what he needed to teach them, etc. Now, 2 Timothy is the last letter that Paul was going to write. He was very soon after this going to be beheaded by the Romans, and he knew that this was coming. And so it's a very personal letter. Uh, he loved Timothy dearly, and near the end of this letter, he is giving this, uh, this charge, really, through, uh, through 310, through kind of the end of the middle of chapter 4, about the things that he wants Timothy to really focus on. And he gives this contrast to the things that are going to go badly uh, in Timothy's day and in, and in our day. You know, in 3 verse 1, mark this, there'll be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. It's the same in their day, and it's the same in our day. And he compares them to these uh, false teachers who are going to come and cause all kinds of trouble. But in verse 10, he says, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose. And, and then he says, the Lord rescued you from these... Uh, persecutions, rescued Paul from these persecutions that he'd endured. And in verse 12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's another sermon there. But it says, verse 13, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and deceiving. So don't be like these guys. And in verse 14, he starts this. Contrasting these folks who will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped or thoroughly equipped for every good work. So he tells Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned. Uh, we know from the first part of this book that Timothy had a, a, a history. His grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice had the faith of Jesus and had passed that on to Timothy. And he's telling him to continue in what you have learned. Learned what? Well, he learned one from Paul, who's a pretty good teacher. And he's learned from Paul, but he's also learned from his mother and his grandmother. He's learned from reading the scriptures. And we know this because it says, well, first is you've learned and become convinced of. So what has he become convinced of? Remember back in chapter 1, Paul says in verse 12, he says, This is why I'm suffering as I am, yet I'm not ashamed of my suffering, because I know whom I have believed. Paul's talking about Jesus. He knows the Lord, and am convinced that he, Jesus, is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Paul is convinced because he knows Jesus, and he's convinced that this Christian life that he's living, that Jesus will 
guard it and keep it. And he will make it all work. And Timothy, too, has learned these things and become convinced of these things. Convinced of the gospel. But then he says, because you know those from whom you learned it. It's not just that he knew information. He had seen the life of Christ lived out in the people of Jesus. He'd seen it in his grandmother. He'd seen it in his mother. He'd seen it in Paul. They were not perfect. Paul's the first guy to admit, I'm not perfect. Timothy had seen the gospel lived out in the lives of the followers of Jesus. And he knew them. And he knew what they were like. And he had seen the work of the gospel in the lives of people. There's... (laughs) If there's no, no other thing that we can do, it's that we can, if we just live out the gospel faithfully, people will see it. So he says that you know those from whom you've learned it. And then in verse 15, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So from infancy or childhood, uh, if you ever ask me how early is, should you start teaching your children the Bible, um, I think that in the womb is a good place. So, you know, they can hear in there. So just start reading it to them. Read them a psalm. Pray for them. I'm not kidding. Just pray the word. Speak the word over your kids while they're in the womb. If the first thing that they hear is you singing scripture over them, that would be good. And how from infancy you have what? Known what? Good information? Known the process? Known the philosophy? Known the way? No. You have known the holy Scriptures, which is, for Timothy, was the Old Testament. For us, is now the Old and the New Testament. And what are these scriptures able to do? It says, which are able. That's the word, uh, Greek word for able there is the one we get the word dynamite from. It means power, which have the power to do what? Make you wise for salvation. That's an incredible statement. Paul is saying that the Bible has the power to make you wise. Not just wise. Wisdom is great. Like read Proverbs, read Ecclesiastes, read the, read the wisdom literature, grow in wisdom. But not just wisdom, but wisdom for salvation. Wise here and wise all the way through to salvation in Jesus. And scripture has the power to do that. It's a remarkable statement. And if you've read the Bible and you've studied the Bible for years, you've experienced that, right? I'm going to ask you this question many times, like, if you've experienced the power of the Word of God to make you wise, there's nothing else like it. So Paul makes this incredible statement about Timothy, calling him back to the Scriptures. Then he says in verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed. So your version may say any Scripture, uh, all or any. It's, um, <clears throat> it's really really means from the littlest parts to the biggest parts, the entirety of Scripture, like every individual part of Scripture is inspired. Like Jesus said, the jot and tittle, it's like the, the, the accent marks or like dotting the I's and crossing the T's. All of that is inspired or God-breathed. Every bit of it. The little parts, the, the parts we were reading yesterday in Genesis, and we read over a genealogy, and Madeline had a question. She's like, well, I don't know what the... What, oh, she's like, oh, I always skip over that part because I didn't know that it was, that was in there. So um, even the genealogies, because I've, I've skipped over plenty, by the way, they're inspired. So what does this mean, this God breathe? You heard us say the Theoponestos, the, the breath of God. <clears throat> what does that mean? Well, you can, there's a whole class in seminary you can take on inspiration and inerrancy and what all that means. But it is that God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired the people who were writing the books of the Bible to write exactly what he wanted to write. So that when Paul is writing this letter to Timothy or when Moses is writing uh, a book or when David is writing Deuteronomy or when John is writing Revelation, that the Spirit of God is inspiring the people of God to write the words of God, okay? And that those words were without error and that we can trust the translation that we have today. There is no better system of checking to see if the old manuscripts that we have is what we have today. It's been run through the ringer a million times over. And the research is, is overwhelmingly in favor of the reliability of the Bible that we hold in our hand. You can dig into that if you want to do that. There's resources out the nose for that. But we can trust this text, okay? But the inspiration is not just about us trusting it. It's what gives the Bible its authority. 
And we say that the, Bible, the Word of God has authority in all things and matters of life and doctrine. Every way that we live and think and believe that the Bible has authority. And the reason it has authority is because it comes from the Lord. Okay? So it gives it authority. So anytime anyone tries to kind of undermine inspiration and inerrancy in those things, what they're really undermining is the authority of the Word of God. And we're seeing it in the church today all over. You've got folks who say, the Bible doesn't really say that. And it's like, no, like it really says that. And now we have to deal with it. And so, but this, the issue comes down to the inspiration of Scripture. This, Paul is saying all of Scripture has the authority of God. It's the Word of God. And it is useful. So, or your version may say profitable. The idea being it has a use. It's not just reading and it's not just existing on my bookshelf or, or, or wherever I have my quiet time or whatever. It's, it has a use. Just like a, a surgeon, a scalpel is useful to a surgeon only if he picks it up and does what he does with it, right? It's useless unless it's in the hands of the person who knows how to use it. But God knows how to use his own scriptures. And it is useful for these four things. There's this process we're going to walk through here for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So, Scripture, the Bible, is Scripture, the Bible, the Word. I'm going to use all three of those things interchangeably, so if you need to make a note. But that's what those things mean. So, I'm talking about the Bible when I say that. It is useful for teaching. So, uh, the word there for teaching is where we get the, it's, uh, it's where we get the English word didactic, this idea of, of a, a process of going back and forth of teaching and learning. Um, and it's the impartation of knowledge. So, if you imagine the teaching relationship, you have a teacher and a learner or a student. So you have someone who knows something and someone who doesn't know something, and then they're able to connect knowledge to that person. So a great teacher, if you've ever experienced this, it's, a mar it's marvelous. A great teacher will take, they know something, their student or learner doesn't know something, and they create understanding, like a, and it's like a conduit. And through this conduit of understanding, they then uh, transmit knowledge to a learner. And then the learner receives that knowledge, right? This is how the, the teaching, the didactic process works. And if you've ever experienced that of the great teacher, it's, it's incredible. I mean, I've learned lots of things. You know, Mrs. Renshaw in first grade knew I needed to know how to read. And she taught me. I, I can now read. And thanks to Mrs. Renshaw, who also had a big paddle in her room. That was a long time ago. So had her name engraved on it. And it was up on the wall in the classroom. And she would take kids in the hallway and go to town on them. Blam! And then all the kids would do what Mrs. Renshaw said. <laughs> My second grade teacher, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Borgman, uh, she knew that I needed to learn my multiplication tables. And so she taught me my multiplication tables. Ms. Bergman was super sweet and saved my life when I was choking on a butterscotch, playing heads up, seven up, waiting for the bus. But <laughs> long live uh, Mrs. Borgman. I don't know where she is, a lord, lover, and keeper. But um, <clears throat> she literally performed the hammock maneuver on me, shot that thing clean across the table. Anyway, <laughs> she taught me my multiplication tables, which I mostly still know today, I think. So... Um, but there's a process, that, uh, uh, a transmission of knowledge. That's what teaching is. Someone knows something, someone doesn't. The teacher brings knowledge to that. So it is the impartation of knowledge. And it's interesting because if you remember what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit in John 14, when he's talking to the disciples, he's encouraging them. He's like, I'm going to leave. And they do not get it. They're like, well, okay, we'll just go where you go. And Jesus is like, mm -mm. no, here's the deal. I'm going to leave. And until I leave, the Holy Spirit is not going to come the helper, this paraclete, this counselor. And when he comes, he will teach you all things. That's what John 14, 26 says. And he will bring to mind all that I have taught you. Think about that. Jesus, God the Son, is saying that God the Spirit is going to come and he will indwell you and he will teach you everything. The Holy Spirit teaches us the Word of God. Now, I mean, listen to good pastors, listen to good... I've learned a lot from good pastors and Bible teachers, but I've really, I've learned through the Holy Spirit. If you learn something because I'm up here yapping, and through the, it's the Holy Spirit teaching us something, not me. I can teach you all kinds of useless stuff, like the Ms. Borgman performed the Heimlich maneuver on me, but the things that matter from the Word of God, the Spirit has to teach that. And He does. Jesus said he's coming to teach us. 
And then Paul says that Scripture is useful for teaching. Well, who does the teaching? The Holy Spirit. What does he teach? He teaches the Word of God. It's incredible. So this teaching, this impartation of knowledge. Second is uh, rebuking. And uh, the word for rebuking there, uh, it may say re rebuffing in your version, but this idea of rebuking is a, uh, an exposing of sin for the purpose of correction. So, I mean, everybody loves, lo loves a good rebuke. It's lots of fun, you know. Like, oh, I haven't had a good rebuke today. Would you please come and rebuke me? Uh, it's not a fun part of the process, right? It is the exposing of sin. The exposing of either sin in our lives, specific sin, or even exposing of the realities of sin in a broken world. Have you ever experienced that in the Word when you're, you're reading something in the Bible and the Lord just pierces your heart? And you're like, ah, oh, like you read like Ephesians 6, 4, uh, fathers do not exasperate your children, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And like, oh, I just exasperated all of my kids, Lord. And he's like, I know, don't. So go make it right. And so I've got to go and not exas unexasperate, dis whatever, fix it. Got to go and not exasperate my children and then continue to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, or uh, Brandon, love your wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. And I'm like, Lord. Or there's a, have you ever experienced that? Where you're reading in the Bible? You can nod. His feedback is okay, by the way. Uh, you can move and like bob your head or wave your hands or whatever. Have you ever experienced reading the Bible and the Lord has exposed your sin to you? He does it broadly. How do you think? Remember, if you, if you came to Christ as an adult, do you remember the moment when you realized that you were a sinner in need of grace? That's the ministry of the Spirit through the Word of God. He reveals our sin to us. But he doesn't leave us there. He moves us to correction. Teaching, rebuking, and correction. Um, I'm going to call correction the restoration of our true selves. The restoration of our true selves. The reason is um, that word for correction is epinothorsis, where we get the second part of that, othorsis, is where we get, it means to, it literally means to make straight or to, uh, to bring back into shape. It's where we get the word orthopedic or orthotics, the branch of medicine that deals with that. And so it is this idea of making something straight, whether it's a, a bone and a leg, or to uh, mix metaphors, which I do all the time. If, you have, uh, if you're making a wall and you're a builder, the wall needs to be straight and square. Now, it doesn't matter how I feel about it. It's either square or it isn't. It's either level or it isn't. If I feel like it's level or I feel like it's square and straight and I just build according to what I feel, the wall is going to fall down at some point because they're meant to be built square. The Word of God is called a plumb line at times. A plumb line, you, ha you have a way that hangs down and it shows you if something is straight or not. Sin has made us crooked. It has twisted us. It's taken that which God has designed, and it has broken it and torsioned it and twisted it and bent it all up out of shape. If you've seen or read The Lord of the Rings, one of the powerful pictures of sin is the, the, the ring, the, the one ring. And everybody, the good guys in that story are the ones who say no, who can just, don't give it to me. Don't, I don't want to touch it. I can't, I can't do it. It's going to overwhelm me. And you have it, it, it takes this little guy, Smeagol, who's this little hobbit-like guy, and he finds this ring, and then it twists him and breaks him, manipulates him, warps him into this creature golem. And all he wants is the ring. It's all he desires. He calls it his precious, and it owns him, and he is its slave. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that we are slaves to sin but those who are in Christ Jesus are no longer slaves to sin because sin twists and it breaks. It's actually one of the beautiful things about the, the profession of medicine is that it takes that which living in a sinful world has broken and it works to redeem and to restore it. It's incredible. And God did not make us to die of cancer. He did not make us to have uh, muscular dystrophy and rheumatoid arthritis he didn't create us that way. He did not create us to die. He created us to live forever in fellowship with him. And I know that because I read it in the Bible. 
But sin comes in and it twists and it bends and it warps and it breaks. And the word of God restores us to straightness. And it restores us to our true selves, who God created us to be. Finally, it says training in righteousness. That uh, word is uh, sometimes translated uh, discipline. And it's the word paideia where we get, um, like we get the word uh, pediatrician from. We get the word uh, um, pedantic. We get this, uh, uh, this idea of training up children. And the word orth- orthopedic means to, meant to straighten out children. You had children who, were, who had uh, problems with their legs, problems with their hips, feet, bones, muscle, muscular, structural, bone problems. And doctors like us figure this out. How do we straighten this kid out? Orthopedics. And it's this idea of uh, training something out. I'm going to call it the process of sanctification because it's training in righteousness. And you have this, uh, this beautiful process of, okay, I'm, we're broken, we're twisted, I've been rebuked, I'm getting corrected, and now I'm going to get trained to go in the way that I should go. If you've ever trained for a marathon or trained for anything, I've not trained for a marathon, by the way. I don't guess I ever will, but maybe I will. Who knows? But if you ever talk to somebody who's training for a marathon, it's a process. It's a long process. Or someone who's an athlete who is in training, like they, they eat certain things, they have very strict... Why? Because they're trying to achieve some kind of a goal. These guys that play in, in professional sports and these ladies, like they're, they're incredible, these, these Olympic athletes that swim and row, and they train very hard for a very long time, for a very short moment in time, for a moment in a game, a few hours or a few minutes or a few seconds. And this picture of training is submitting to a process for an end goal. Well, what is the end process for us? It's to be like Jesus. It is to be righteous like Jesus is righteous. Now we are declared righteous, this is called our justification, by faith in Jesus. But there is a process of growing in that sanctification, of becoming who we really are. And that's walking by faith. It's the process that God brings us through, and that is this training in righteousness. So he, it happens, that verb is all over the Bible. Like it's in, it's in Proverbs, train up your child in the way they should go so that when they're old, they will not depart from it. I already mentioned the one in Ephesians uh, where it says, bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In, uh, in Hebrews, there's a, it's in chapter 12, a whole bunch. I remember our study of Hebrews. Um, it's talking about how God disciplines his children. And for instance, Hebrews 12.5 says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. When you're reading the Bible and you feel the discipline of the Lord in your heart that is proof that you are his child, don't push it away. If you keep reading in verse 10, it says, Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness, sanctification. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The Word of God trains us up in righteousness. If you've ever trained up a vine as a gardener, you have a vine that grows up, and if you just let the vine go, it just grows everywhere. It doesn't bear much fruit. Doesn't do. If you ever been to a vineyard, you see how grapes are growing up, and they're because if you just let them grow on the ground, the grapes will rot. So they have the the vines trained up. Every gardener knows you have to train a vine. To train it just means you give it somewhere to go. You have a place. This is where I want it to go, and this is where it should go. And then if it gets out of out of uh, off off train or out of whack, you prune it and you put it back on track. This is what the word does for us. The name of this church, the vine, comes from this whole idea. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The Father is the vine dresser. He prunes us as we go through the word of God. Are are you seeing the centrality of the usefulness of Scripture in the life of a believer? I challenge you to explain to me how in the world you're going to grow up in Christ without being in the Bible. I challenge you to convince me how in the world are you going to be equipped to to walk on the water with Jesus unless you know his word? When Jesus comes, says, come get out of the boat, 
You're not going to know what to do unless you know him through the word. There is no other way for us to grow in Christ than by spending time in the word, praying, serving, loving, and living out what he teaches us to do in the word. It's in applying the word of God in daily life that we grow. He tells me I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loves the church. I have to apply that, and I realize I can't. And I I ask him for help, and there's this process of remaining in him, abiding in him, trusting in him, surrendering to him. He tells me I'm supposed to bring my kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I don't know how to do that. Lord, help me. He tells me I'm supposed to love my neighbor well. I don't like my neighbor. He is a jerk. God says, yes, and I love him, and I'm sending you to him with the gospel. So go. This is how it works. It says, though, in verse 17, anytime I see a so that in the Bible, it's a gift because he's telling us what it's for. So that the man, person, human, woman of God, servant of God, really probably a better translation, may be thoroughly equipped for what? Every good work. God created us for good works. We just finished Ephesians not too long ago. He created us for good works, which he predestined beforehand for us to do so that we would walk in them. He's made us to do good works in a broken, sinful, twisted world, to be lights in the darkness, to help straighten out that which is broken by sin. But the only way we can be equipped to do it is to submit to the work of the word of God in our lives. So what do we uh, do with these things? Well, um, practically speaking, I'm going to give you a couple tips here. These are not new. You've probably heard of these things. This is not rocket science. I guess it's probably behavioral science. But it's, this is nothing new. You've probably read it in a book or several books or read it on a blog or something. I'm just going to give a couple tips that are helpful for how do I read my Bible, okay? What does that look like? And I want to keep it very, very simple. And I'm going to focus right now on just uh, how do I make the habit stick? Because most of us can read the Bible. If, okay, disclaimer, if you cannot read Send me an email. It's brandon at thevineokc.com, and I will teach you how to read, okay? I'll make sure that you learn how to read. I don't know how that works exactly with it. I don't know. But we'll do it. If you can't read, come to me, and you will get taught how to read. If you don't know how to study the Bible at all, like if you're like, I read this, and none of it makes sense to me, send me an email, and I can hopefully help you read it and get something from it. But you can read, and you can say, you know, what is God teaching me, and et cetera. But what does that look like? First off, I want to remind you that you, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're a disciple. And a disciple means a learner. And a learner learns. So read your Bible. Why? Because that's who you are. You're a Bible reader. Just reminding you, you are, that's who you are. You're a disciple of Jesus. And a disciple of Jesus reads the Bible. So you're a disciple. You're a Bible reader. And so you read. Second is uh, create an environment. I like the same place, same time, same thing, every day if you can. I know life's crazy. Don't get me wrong. I, I promise. Uh, I have not had a quiet time today. Just confess that from the pulpit, right? I got up early, prepping for this. I guess I prayed. Okay, I guess I prayed. I did not read the passage of Scripture that I'm supposed to read today. Okay, I haven't had my quiet time. I've had time with Jesus. I've talked to him a lot. I've read the Word. I mean, I guess that's a quiet time. But I haven't had my official quiet time. That's okay. There's more time in the day. Unless, uh, unless I get hit by a bus on the way across the street, which is not entirely unlikely. And uh, which case I go to Jesus and it's like uh, eternal quiet time. So good. Um, but that's okay. Uh, but same place as much as you can. Get your Bible, get a pen, get a journal. Maybe you read a, your Bible on your phone or whatever. I don't care. Uh, but whatever you use for a quiet time, put it in a place. If you want to have your quiet time in the morning before you go to bed at night, Put your Bible and your pen and your journal in a place where you want to sit. I've got an end of the couch, which is near a fireplace. There's books, there's a Bible, stack, Bible stacked up there. I've got a light. Boom, I'm there. Janie's got her seat. Boop, right across the thing. That's, that's her chair. And so same thing, same place, same time, same thing every day. Create an environment. It's easy. You wake up, you read the Bible, or you maybe do it before you go to bed. If that's the case, put it by a bedside table. Wherever it is you're going to do it, make a choice. Pick a place. Pick a time. Pick what you're going to do, and then do it. But create a space and an environment where you can do it. Um, three, I want you to read one verse. I don't want you to read a chapter. I do want you to read a chapter. But 
um, I want you to read the whole Bible. But just read one verse. If you're thinking, I don't have time to read a chapter this morning. Okay, you have time to read one verse. In the time it takes you to argue with me that you don't have time to read one verse, you could have read a verse. Okay, so you can read one verse. Sit down, open the Bible, and read, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. That's 2 Timothy 4.1. But I guarantee if you read one verse, you're probably going to want to read the second verse. And right after that is preach the word. Be prepared in season. It's a pretty good verse to keep reading. So read one verse. Start with a verse. If you're like, I don't know what that verse means, it's okay. Read it. And then ask, what does it mean? And then ask the Lord, Lord, what does this mean? If you ever remember very long and you read a verse in the Bible and you say, what does it mean? I'm going to first ask you, what does it say? So figure out what it says and then figure out what it means and then figure out what you're supposed to do with it. Read one verse. I do want you to read every chapter in the Bible, but there's 1,189 of them, which is a lot to do in one sitting. So I suggest you start with a word and then read a sentence and then read a verse. And if you keep doing that, you'll eventually read through the whole thing. And then you can start over again and read it again. Uh, finally, um, enjoy it. Couple it with something that you enjoy. Like, I love coffee. And so I may have an unnatural love for coffee. I truly, truly love it. Like, I hope it's in heaven. And if not, I'm going to ask Jesus to make coffee. So I love coffee. It wakes me up, but I also just, I love it. I have a cup of coffee when I study the Bible in the morning because I like coffee. If you're a tea drinker, whatever. If you drink Dr. Pepper, that's great. If maybe you had a bowl of M&Ms and every time you read a verse, you eat it. Maybe not every verse, but be like a lot of, Anyway, but the, maybe what's something that you enjoy? Maybe you like reading the sports page. Well, after you finish reading your Bible, read this, reward yourself. Like, it's okay to enjoy things. God made us to enjoy life. Honestly, of course, reading the Bible should be enjoyable. But if you don't enjoy reading the Bible for itself, you will if you keep doing it, then connect it with something that you like. Just make it enjoyable. Connect it with that thing, couple it with it, and then enjoy the process. So this week we talked about what it looks like to, uh, and why it's important for us to study the Word as an individual. Next week we're going to be in Colossians 3, looking at why it's important and why it matters that we study it in community. Uh, yes, from the pulpit, but also in life groups and in Bible studies throughout the week. It's a very important part of walking with Jesus. Our job in this is to help make it easy for you, okay? So we came up with this. This will look very familiar if you've done the Bible reading plan. It's basically the same format because, I mean, why remake the wheel? So it says dwell, which is right behind me here, embracing the fullness of the Word of God. And the title for that is going to come out of our passage for next week. But this is really, really simple. Starting on January 15th, right here, January 15th through February 28th, which is a month and a half, there is a psalm a day and a passage in Luke, usually about half of a chapter in Luke. And you'll go through Psalm 1 through 45 and the entire book of Luke in those 45 days, Okay. And if you've ever been on like a 90-day Bible reading plan, like this is easy. <laughs> it's just, it's not that many. It's one chapter in, the, in a psalm, which is usually rather short. And we're looking at about five minutes of actual reading, okay? And then you can reflect. You ask God, what are you teaching me? You write down a key verse with the Holy Spirit is teaching you and calling you to do. And then you respond, write out a brief prayer to him. To do that, we've created a little journal. You don't have to take this journal, but we've... Uh, made them, and it just has, it has a text. What's the text for the day? What's the date? What's the key verse? A little reflection and a prayer that I can pray. Super simple. If you've ever done anything like this, it's not complicated. Like I said, it's not rocket science. It's just doing it, and it's creating a habit. The reason we're doing 45 days in a row is just the purpose of creating or deepening the habit of doing it. Why? Because habits, we fall out of them, and we can create good ones. And we want to create, as a church, the purpose uh, of doing this is to create a church, have a church, a church culture that's just in our Bibles all the time. Because when we do that, we get corrected and unrebuked and we get trained up in righteousness. When we leave today, I'm going to remind you of this during the benediction, but when we leave today, there's going to be a little table outside that's going to have this. This won't start till the 15th, by the way. So if you're super like, uh, organized, just realize this. Not for tomorrow. You can just hold off. You can read. If you don't know what to read for uh, this week, uh, you can read uh, 1 Timothy. It's got six chapters. So uh, you can just start um, uh, or pick one that has five chapters. You can read Ephesians. It's got six. Pick a Bible in the New Testament, a book in the New Testament. Read it. Start tomorrow. You can use the same journal. Apply the things from today. Just find something. First Timothy, read one, two, three, four, five, six. Read one today. 
uh, one tomorrow morning, read one on Saturday, come to church on Sunday, boom, pick up with this on Monday, there's your plan. So you can not freak out about that. But January 15th is when we're starting it, a week from Monday. So January 15th, not tomorrow, a week from then. And we're going to have a sign-up sheet out there. So what we want you to do is we want everyone to sign up for this Bible reading plan. And we're going to create a way to communicate with each other through GroupMe or something else that's hopefully not terribly annoying. And the reason for that is for accountability. It's all a lot easier if you've got a group of people you can text real quick and say, I'm, I didn't study my Bible today. It's 10 o'clock at night. I'm really tired. And someone can say, go read it. It's okay. Sit your thing. You know, do your thing. And it just works. God made us to work in community. So we want to sign up. And want you to take this, and want you to take this. And if you're here this week and not here next week, now you don't have an excuse. But we're doing it for two weeks because you can pick it up because if you're moving around or whatever, then you're here and you can do it. But when we leave here today, there's a sign-up table out there by where the, where the traffic cones normally go. That's how we roll around here. And uh, you can sign up, grab this, grab this, and then on the 15th, we can start the plan together. How's this sound? Everybody ready? Okay, okay, ready to go. Got you all pumped up. Tomorrow, next week, I'll really cheerleader you up, so gear up for it. Um, that's it. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you, and we're so grateful to you that you call us to the word and that you've given us the word. We have it in our language in multiple translations, and we can read it on our phones or go to a store and buy a Bible, or we can get on our phone and buy it, and it will be at our house tomorrow. You have given us full access to everything. It's easy for us to get a Bible. Uh, we can pick up a Bible in our chair today at the church, and if you don't have a Bible and you want one, you can take that one right there. That's why it's there. So, Lord, thank you for making it easy and available. Um, we ask you to move in us as a church. You are the God who thunders, whose voice thunders. And I want you, Lord Jesus, to rumble at the very deep parts of our soul. I want you to restore our soul as a church and I want you to call us out of the boat, Lord Jesus. We do not know what you have for us this year, but we believe that you were calling us to life outside of the boat. And the only way that we can walk in that is to walk with you in your word. So move us, Lord Jesus. Convict our hearts. Draw us to you. Protect our time, Lord Jesus. The devil will come in and try to keep us from studying the Bible at every single turn. Make us aware of his work. Make us aware of his schemes. Help us to see things through your eyes. And help us not commit to a plan, but to respond to the work of the Spirit in our lives. Help us respond to the calling of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus, that we would spend time with you in the Word. Help us fall more deeply in love with you. Help us love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves, as a church. We ask these things in your risen and exalted name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's all stand together as we sing this final song and uh, seal these things up in our heart.
riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only are first in my heart. High King of my treasure. song. All right, so when you leave today, if you're not fired up to read the Bible, I don't know what else I can do, but um, go out, sign up. There's a table out there as you leave. You can sneak out the side door if you want to, but we'll see you. So um, sign up for this, grab your card, grab your thing, and go in peace.